feel that immunocompromised people are the most impacted and yet the most overlooked part of the population. I am 83 and was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease in 1979. I have taken strong immunosuppressive medicine since then. They suppress all my immunity, making me quite susceptible to infection. During COVID, my wife and I are hermits, going nowhere but to get vaccinations and to keep important medical appointments. I am not terribly optimistic, but I am well. When I take my biologic for my Crohn's, I'm a bit more cautious and reclusive to be safe those first couple weeks. That said, if I know for sure I'm going to be around people who are also fully vaccinated, I do not wear a mask as I am trying to get life back to normal. Nationwide, masks are becoming less and less common, and remote is no longer an option at many schools and workplaces. That puts more than 7 million immunocompromised Americans in a difficult position. Their weakened immune systems make it much more likely they'll catch COVID and that they'll get sick or even die. Mira, Brent, and Jeffrey, who we heard from at the start of the show, are some of those immunocompromised Americans. And we'll hear more from Mira a little later on. After the break, we'll discuss what the so-called return to normal means for those who are immunocompromised. We'll also discuss what we can do to protect the most vulnerable. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. We're discussing the so-called return to normal and what it means for immunocompromised Americans. Joining us now is Ed Young. He's a science writer for The Atlantic. Ed, welcome back. Hi, thanks so much for having me. And Marnie White is a professor of public health and psychiatry at Yale School of Public Health. Professor White, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me, and thank you for attending to this important topic. Well, I want to start with your story. About a month before the pandemic, you were diagnosed with an autoimmune disease that requires chemotherapy, and the treatment wiped out your immune system. With COVID raging through the country, how at risk were you of catching and getting very sick from the coronavirus? Um, It turns out I was extremely at risk. Um, I had the extreme good fortune of, of teaching Um, about what we were calling the novel coronavirus at that time. And so because I was covering that in my undergraduate epidemiology course, I was um, paying very close attention to the data and learned um, about my own vulnerability 
following my treatments in that I would be extremely at risk to respiratory diseases. Um, I did have the very good fortune of already having been vaccinated against the flu and pneumonia and other uh, things that would have been um, extremely compromising to my system. But with the emergence of this new virus, my risk level um, was suddenly extreme. Um, in the words of my physician, ultra high risk and um, potentially at risk of dying um, were I to have been exposed. How did you keep yourself safe through the pandemic? At that point in time, this was actually before the lockdowns that we all experienced. I pulled my child from school, um, got in touch with my department chair and got permission to teach my courses fully remotely for the rest of the semester. And my husband, who is a child psychologist, had to stop working um, because his work requires face-to-face with very young children. What was it like for you emotionally to be going through chemotherapy while also worrying about this additional threat? It was quite terrifying. Um, and uh, it, it, was, <laughs> it was, we were dealing with a lot at that time, um, mostly still kind of processing the aftermath of learning that I had a very uh, dangerous disease, being grateful that I was able to be treated for that disease quickly, um, having the knowledge that I would likely be okay if the treatment worked for me, Um, but then having a a new, even more extreme threat to my health was uh, quite challenging. And then, of course, just the the unknown that the entire world was experiencing while simultaneously watching the traumas around us. Um, and then worrying about my child uh, and, and my stepchildren as well, um, wondering how they would be mentally and emotionally um, throughout it all. And so, you know, we, we were doing a whole lot of risk-benefit of analysis, like what is, um, is most important here? Should my child be given the opportunity to socialize with other children? Um, But then, you know, trying to offset against the very real possibility that if we did allow any kind of risk, um, I might die. And and trying to weigh that, uh, you know, the damage that he would endure from that very real threat versus allowing him to enjoy a a semi-normal childhood. These were the kinds of discussions that um, my husband and I were having during that period. Ed, you've spoken to many immunocompromised people across the country. How familiar is Professor White's story? Um, It it feels very familiar. Um, Both the, there's so many parts of it that that ring true to um, the stories I've heard from dozens of other people. Um, The the uncertainty of it all, um, knowing that you um, you are at higher risk, um, sort of being unable to exactly pinpoint like the, the quantitative nature of that risk, but knowing that it exists, having to make all these agonizing decisions about not just yourself, but your family's exposure, you know, how much risk you're willing to tolerate. Um, these, you know, these are almost universal experiences to the people I've talked to. And I, I think the thing that I really want to emphasize is that this is a substantial group of people. You know, the immunocompromised people are not just this like tiny outgroup. Um, you know, on on the on the fringes of society. Um, there's um, by by some estimates um, around three percent of um, adults in the U.S. 
are on some kind of immunosuppressive drug like the kinds that um, Professor White uh, talked about. Um, that would make around 7 million people um, in, in this group, which is already larger than the population of 36 states. And that doesn't even include the people who have diseases that hamper immunity like AIDS or some 450 different genetic disorders. So it's a large group of people. And they're also, you know, they, they're not... Um, as as is often said in stereotype, just you know, cloistered in in some bubble, um, they're they're among us. You know, they're the people who um, who we see day in day out. A lot of them work in our hospitals. Um, you know, they, they a lot of them are essential workers. Um, they they live in society, and um, before COVID happened, um, a lot of them you know had kind of normalish lives. They were they were managing their risks of infection. Having this extra threat changed a lot for many of the people I talked to. And having this threat still persist at a time when many other people have decided that it's over and, and that it's time to go back to normal um, is really challenging. For a lot of immunocompromised people, um, you know, they don't get to go back to normal. They still have to cope with this extremely... Uh, this much heightened risk of infection. Professor White, your 10-year-old son attended remote school in 2020 and most of 2021. But last August, his school ended remote learning and you sued Fearfield School District to allow him to continue with that option. What happened? The uh, the case was thrown out at the state level. Um, the state of Connecticut, where I reside, um, in around February of 2021, stated that the districts would no longer be required to provide a remote option. And there was sort of a, a disclaimer added at the end of the, of the governor's statement that said, oh, but for those people who need it because they're medically vulnerable, we'll provide something. And then that, not, that something never came. Um, so in, when it, around the summertime, um, when I realized that the district and the district announced that they would not provide any kind of remote alternative. Um, simultaneously, they also sent a letter to the state education system requesting that masks be removed from the school district, um, that children who were wholly unvaccinated at the time not be required to wear masks in schools. Um, so realizing just how unsafe our schools would be for unvaccinated children and that it would simply not be possible to send my child back to school um, in a, a kind of fit of desperation, hired a special education attorney to um, try to get some kind of accommodation for us. He believed that it was possibly covered under the American Disabilities Act, um, but it was thrown out. Fortunately, the district um, did provide for us some remote tutoring uh, that started at about the third week of the school year. So at that point in time, my child had anywhere between 24 minutes to three hours of tutoring online. Um, but that was his school year. But he is he going to school in person right now? Right now he is because I my health situation has improved to the point that my physician um, has has deemed it um, a tolerable risk for us. I'm one of the very fortunate um, members of the immunocompromised community who was finally able to um, develop antibodies mm -hmm. to the vaccine. It took four rounds of vaccine, and it also um, required that I stop my chemotherapy treatments about a year early. But I'm extremely lucky 
um, that um, my risk level is, has, has diminished from extreme, extreme high risk to just high risk. When you look at the public health decisions that are being made right now, do you think the safety of immunocompromised people is still being considered? Not at all. No, I think that, and it's even in the CDC statements of with mask policy currently, there's even this caveat that says, oh, and immunocompromised people should consult your doctors for guidance. It feels as though public health has shifted from its primary goal of protecting the health of the public to putting the responsibility on the individual. That's Marnie White, a professor of public health and psychiatry at Yale School of Public Health. Professor White, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Being immunocompromised is an umbrella term that comes with a wide range of COVID risk. We'll get more into that in a moment. Joining us now, Dr. Janina Smith is the medical director of the Transplant and Immunocompromised Host Service at the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Smith, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Also with us is Matthew Cortland, a senior fellow working on disability and health care for the think tank Data for Progress. Matthew, welcome. Thanks so much. It's so good to be with you. I think it's worth explaining in more detail before we go on what it means to be immunocompromised and the various reasons someone might be. Help us out. Sure. Um, so some people have um, uh, conditions that naturally weaken their immune system. So I talked about um AIDS and some genetic disorders before. Other people might be taking medications that suppress their immune system that um, treat all kinds of different um, conditions, uh, a lot of autoimmune diseases, um, some cancers. Um, some people might be on immunosuppressive drugs because they've had organ transplants or stem cell transplants and, and need to pro- stop their bodies from rejecting um, the, the um, transplanted tissues or organs. So there's a wide range of reasons. They come with a wide range of risks and therefore we see a wide range of attitudes to um, to safety and how much risk different people are willing to tolerate. And you said there's an estimated 7 million immunocompromised people in the country. Does that, do we know for sure that really captures the true number of people, people who maybe haven't been diagnosed with an issue that could give them some comorbidities? So that number is based on um, estimates for people getting immunosuppressive drugs. It doesn't include people in the first category, I said, who, um, who have uh, diseases that naturally impact their immunity. And, you know, there's also, I think one important aspect of this is that one of the things that actually naturally weakens our immunity is age, right? So we're not we're not including the very elderly in that um, number, but in some ways they are part of this conversation too. Like one of the reasons why COVID is so um, uh, so disproportionately harmful to um, elderly people is because they have um, weakened immunity, and. I think that's really important when thinking about the, this this concept and the kind of risks we're asking the immunocompromised to still shoulder. Um, you know, they, they're not just um, this sort of outgroup of society. I think of um, immunocompromised people as us in the future. Like if we are, um, if we are, and we should going to um, put in extra efforts to make accommodations for immunocompromised people, in many ways that is empathizing with our future self. This is a a state that um, many and most of us will enter at some point in our lives. And I think it, it, you know, even if you don't buy the moral reasons for um, protecting immunocompromised people in the pandemic now, there's a purely selfish reason, which is that the, the measures you put in are going to benefit you in the future. 
Matthew, you are immunocompromised. Walk us through the calculations you make about masking and going out in public right now. Oh, you know, the, the thing is, that's, that's unfair because I've, I've had two years of graduate training in public health. And so, you know, the, what I'm trying to say is that graduate education is not a scalable solution for immunocompromised, disabled, and chronically ill Americans to figure out how they're going to go through their day, right? So I understand because my professors drilled into my head things about hazard ratios and relative risk and reading the papers that, that everyone here is referencing. And so based on that, I've actually, you know, go upstream. I've made treatment decisions to limit my use of more immunocompromising medications. I, 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 think of, I think of the immune system not like a light switch, a binary on or off. It's more of a dimmer switch where you get gradations of your immune system being compromised. And it's not just one dimmer switch, it's actually a bank of dimmer switches. And so I've made treatment choices to limit how many of those dimmer switches are being dimmed and how much they're being dimmed. But I still I, I still wear an N95 mask everywhere I go if it's an indoor shared air environment. You know, I, I try to limit my exposure to, to going indoors where there are crowded places, but, you know, still have to go to healthcare facilities. I still have to go to the pharmacy in order to get the medication that helps keep me alive. I need to go see my doctors who prescribe that medication. Um, so even though I have the, the great good fortune of being able to work from home, unlike many, many immunocompromised Americans, I, I still do have to leave my apartment um, which is something, unfortunately, our public health leaders seem to have forgotten. Ed, the article you wrote recently about the immunocompromised featured this subtitle, What Does Society Owe Immunocompromised People? Why is that question central to this conversation? Right, because I think throughout the pandemic, um, the risks um, have been disproportionately borne by some of the most vulnerable people um, in our society. And that continues to be the case. Um, you know, I, I think that um, uh, the the lifting of mask mandates, um, the uh, change in the CDC's guidance um, recently that recategorized much of the country as low risk, um, many of these moves that seem to deprioritize the control of infection um, really put immunocompromised people in an immensely difficult position. Um, if you look at the CDC's new, new guidelines, um, it, it really does seem to say you're on your own. Like you, you deal with this extra risk that you still face. Like for for um, in in some of the condition in some conditions, um, like in the medium risk category, um, immunocompromised people are told to go talk to your doctor um, about things like wearing masks and managing wearing masks and managing your risk, and that's just grossly insufficient. It's just the wrong attitude to, to public health, as Professor White mentioned earlier. Like We need to be um, putting in the kinds of measures and policies that protect um, entire, the entire population, and especially the most vulnerable people among us. They should be central to our policies, not just this kind of discarded talk-to-your-doctor group. Um, and, you know, I, w one thing I, I want to point out... Um, Again, based on what Dr. White said, uh, Professor White said earlier, um, it's there's this sort of stereotype that um, 
immunocompromised people are a group of folks who are sort of holding society back, right? There's this that um, in in accommodating to them, we are prolonging this emergency period and delaying this return to normal that everyone wants. I think it's actually exactly the opposite. I think that society um, in rushing headlong to normal is pulling um, immunocompromised people into a really unenviable position where they're having to make decisions about um, reintegration with no cons- uh, with no consideration about the residual risk they bear. And the loss of remote options is just part of that. Um, you know, that for a time, uh, accommodations were made. Um, uh, uh, dis- um, immunocompromised people did have the option to work remotely, or at least some of them did, or, or you know, school remotely. And a lot of those options are being taken away at the same time that um, the the protections that reduce the risk of infection are also going away. And at the same time that medications that could help to compensate for that higher risk are incredibly hard to find and are, if, any, if anything, going to be harder. Um, and all of these things combined explain why so many of the immunocompromised people I talk to feel like they've been utterly abandoned um, by the government, by the rest of society, even by friends and family who don't seem to be um, trying to 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 empathise or help or, or um, recognise um, that they still bear a significant risk that the, the pandemic is still not over for them. We're discussing what this stage of the pandemic means for millions of immunocompromised Americans and their families. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Fox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. For millions of immunocompromised Americans, COVID continues to pose a serious risk. How do we balance the needs of our most vulnerable with the desire to get back to so-called normal? We're talking about it with Ed Young, science writer for The Atlantic, Matthew Cortland, a senior fellow working on disability and health care for the think tank Data for Progress, and Dr. Janina Smith, the medical director of the Transplant and Immunocompromised Host Service at the University of Wisconsin. And coronavirus cases are rising right now in Western Europe, fueled by the Omicron subvariant known as BA2. How worrisome is this uptick in cases overseas, especially for the immunocompromised? Um, I think it's it's worrying. Um, uptake in cases is, is never good. And in particular, an uptake in cases in Europe has almost always augured a similar rise in the U.S. I don't see any reason why this um, instance should be different. And it comes at a time when most of the protections, um, the, the quite meager protections, to be frank, that immunocompromised people had um, experienced in past surges of the pandemic are also being stripped away. And I think it's just 
the joint stripping away of so many layers of protection that's exceptionally ludicrous. Like, okay, say you take away mask mandates. Well, fine. The risk of infection for immunocompromised people is higher, but I'm sure then that we'll manage that by putting a lot of money into improving ventilation systems around the country. Oh, it turns out we're not going to do that. Well, in that case, then I assume that we're going to instead double down on remote working and schooling options. Oh, we're, out to, we're also taking those away too. Well, then I guess that we'll give, we'll ensure that immunocompromised people have easy and equitable access to the kinds of treatments that could prevent infections or severe outcomes from infections. What's that? Those treatments are incredibly hard to get and in short supply. Well, maybe we're just going to get more doses of those. No, it turns out um, COVID funding is being slashed, which means that the, su the supplies are going to actually get worse rather than better. You put all those things together, like, just, are you kidding? This is what immunocompromised people are facing in the future, in the middle of a pandemic that is very much not over for all of us, and especially not over for them. Uh, I just... I just think it's absurd. It is, it is truly, it, it's truly hard to fully describe the ways in which this population of people are just being thrown under the bus right now. We got this tweet from Laura who says, the irony of sitting in my car listening to 1A on immunocompromised people while outside the doctor's office, where I have to be at least two times per week. See, it's impossible for sick folks to just stay home. We have to go to high-risk medical facilities in order to survive. We also got this tweet from Holly who says, do scientists and medical professionals feel that non-immunocompromised people should continue to wear masks? I would continue masking if that were the case. And Dr. Smith, Holly's speaking specifically about wearing that mask in, in the effort to protect immunocompromised people. But we've also gotten a question from a lot of folks asking, is it simply enough for immunocompromised people to wear a mask and everybody else doesn't have to? What can you tell us? Um, so there's really two answers to that question. I think one thing that's really important in terms of messaging is um, what people have taken away from the new CDC guidance is, quote, you don't need to wear masks. In fact, my patients have told me that that's what's shouted at them when they're seen out in public wearing masks. And in fact, what I think it's more important to understand that the CDC is no longer prioritizing prevention of infection. And that's true for everybody. So even if you're immunocompetent and you are vaccinated and boosted, um, you can still get the Omicron variant and you can still get sick. Your chance of getting so sick that you're hospitalized um, is greatly decreased by the vaccine. But masks are really what prevent infection and vaccines for most people is what prevents severe consequences of infection. Um, so if you don't want to get COVID, if you don't want to give COVID to anyone else, wearing a mask is still um, something that I recommend for your own protection. Uh, moving on from that in terms of is it enough um, to just wear a unilateral mask, so just wearing the mask when you yourself are desiring protection. There, uh, the quality of mask there really matters. So wearing, a, you know, the gold standard is a fit-tested N95 mask, and that's what I've been wearing throughout the pandemic, caring for patients with COVID at their bedside. And I have not gotten COVID despite intense exposure. So we know that N95 masks work. There was 
just a study released by the CDC last week that wearing a KN95 mask or N95 mask in public reduced your risk of infection over someone who is unmasked by more than 80%. But as uh, Mr. Young just mentioned, it's really important to consider protections in a layered approach. And the classic that we talk about is Swiss cheese, that we know that each layer of the cheese has some holes, but when you stack them up together, they can provide very significant protection. Um, so wearing masks for both people definitely reduces the risk. Um, so for a vaccinated individual, they may acquire COVID. They may actually even be asymptomatic. But we know from uh, data, some of it at the University of Wisconsin, the viral loads may still be very high and they still may be capable of transmitting infection. So to me, if a person knows that uh, an action as simple as wearing a mask in the grocery store or the pharmacy could actually save a life of um, someone, or their fellow citizen who is immunocompromised or receiving therapy for chemotherapy for cancer. Um, that is the message that I think um, needs to be transmitted, that, that you want to prevent cases because you want to prevent the chance of, of killing someone else. Matthew, I, I want to return to your point earlier about the American with Dis- Americans with Disabilities Act and how there are legal protections, but it, if I'm hearing you correctly, people are having trouble accessing those protections specifically um, around this this issue, what are the barriers there? What do we need to change so that this becomes that, that we're just protecting people more effectively? Yeah, so we're really talking around without naming ableism. Disabled Americans aren't surprised that we've been left behind by policymakers. The, the disability community is used to the sort of systemic and pervasive devaluation of the lives of disabled Americans, and of course, it, we we. Scholars like Kimberly Crenshaw have taught us that when when someone is a black disabled woman, the barriers that they face to accessing something like Evusheld are even greater. But you know, even anyone trying to access Evusheld is, is going to run into uh, the Department of Health and Human Services locator page, which is how you're supposed to find Evusheld. Says in bold type. It's not for use by patients. So it's just another example of ableism being pervasive and, and immunocompromised people being talked about as if we're other and we're less than and we can't make our own decisions and we can't navigate the U.S. healthcare system when for most immunocompromised patients, they've had to become fierce advocates, fierce self-advocates to survive this system. So what sort of changes do we need to sort of push back against ableism? First of all, public health itself is built on ableism. It's a profoundly sort of ableist undertaking for many, which is a, a heartbreaking realization for my public health grad school days. But in terms of legal protections, in terms of legal protections, there are a few things we need to do. First of all, we need we need Congress to give us money. That That's one form of legal protection, right? So we're out of money for Evusheld. We're out of money for Paxlovid very soon. These are the, the medications that immunocompromised people might rely on to stay alive. But we also need to reconsider how how we do just basic disability protection in federal law and state law, because in the age of airborne aerosolized communicable diseases. That's Matthew Cortland. They're a senior fellow working on disability and healthcare for the think tank Data for Progress. Also with us, Dr. Janina Smith, medical director of the Transplant and Immunocompromised Host Service at the University of Wisconsin, and Ed Young, a science writer at The Atlantic. Thanks to you all for this conversation. It's a subject we'll return to here on 1A. Today's producer was Avery J.C. Kleinman. 
This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.